Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Welcome to tonight's debate. I'm your moderator, Kyone Wolf. Tonight's debate is sponsored by Connecticut Brotherhood of Airsots Broadcasters, the National Scented Candle Institute, the Association of Extruded Pet Food Manufacturers, and Alcoa, a global leader in lightweight metals technology. Our questions tonight will be asked by our panelists, Mike Douglas, Mark Davis, John Paul Stevens, Aaron Paul, Stephen Paul Mitchell, and Douglas Mark Paul Michael Stephen. Each candidate will have two minutes to answer a question. His opponent will have two minutes to respond to that answer, followed by a one-minute response to the response to the answer, followed by a bathroom break, followed by an allocation of minutes and an amount divisible by three for idle chatter. There's no standing eight count, no three knockdown rule. If I say break up the clinch, each fighter take two steps back. You get knocked down, you get up again. I'm never going to keep you down. You get knocked down, you get up again. I'm never going to keep you down. We agreed to flip a coin to see how we'll decide who goes first. The coin came up heads. That means we use rock, paper, scissors. Everybody with me so far? Uh, I have a question. Yes. Who am I debating? Who are you debating? Who are you debating? You know, I, I don't have that here. So all these rules refer to a debate in which there is no opponent? You know what? I can't worry about every little thing here. Could you run back and forth between the two podiums? Uh, I suppose. I was really looking forward to debating somebody. Well, this is not a perfect world. Political debating is never a perfect world. That's the focus of our show today. Also, don't forget how much a scented candle like pumpkin ginger bark can really perk up a room. And now he's known as the Candy Crawley of modern cockfighting, Colin McEnroe. And I'm proud of that, by the way. Uh, all right. It's actually a, um, a sobriquet that I myself have promulgated. All right. So we're going to talk about debates. And this is kind of an unusual thing that we're doing here because, in fact— Three of us sitting in this room, three of the four people sitting in this room, at the, at, at the immediate conclusion of our show, are going to go toddling over to the Hartford Hilton. Actually, it's not written in stone that we'll toddle. But uh, we'll go over to the Hartford Hilton uh, and prepare ourselves for an actual gubernatorial debate. Uh, so let me tell you who's he here. And as we go along here, we're going to talk a little bit about debates in general, how they've gone, how ones in this season have gone. Uh, as, as, as we go along here, we'd love to hear from you if you have – probably rampant dissatisfactions with the current state of political debate or things you'd like to see or things you'd like to hear, 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. That's the number to call. You may tweet us at WNPR Colin. You may be tweeted back at by our tweetmaster, Greg Hill. In studio with us right now, Kevin McMahon. He's the John R. Reitmeyer Professor of Political Science at Trinity. And because of his august academic uh, reputation. He does not have to participate in today's gubernatorial <laughs> debate. The rest of us do, including Dennis House, an Emmy Award-winning journalist and, of course, anchor at WFSB, and Jennifer Bernstein, a journalist and anchor at Fox, Connecticut. Uh, there is a debate this afternoon at 4 at the Hartford Hilton. I will be the moderator. God help us. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Dennis and Jen will be joined by uh, Keisha Grant, Mark Davis, and Steve Kochko, who we're not going to talk about because they didn't come to the show today. So, you know, I mean, just forget, forget about them for now. So, um, Dennis, I wanted to start with you just because not to long ago, uh, just a couple of, of uh, weeks ago, you were moderating one of these debates. It was a different format from what we'll have today, where there are five interrogators. Uh, it was just you and Tom Foley and that other guy, Dan Malloy, uh, on stage. Um, first of all, 
I, I'm dying to pick your brain for advice on how to be a moderator, although today I'm a glorified timekeeper. You were really the gym layer of this debate. You were asking the questions. Um, how did you go into that? What were your objectives as a moderator on that day? Well, first of all, Colin, thank you for having me on today. I have interviewed Tom Foley and Governor Malloy, as you have many times over the last four years. So it's difficult to come up with a question that they've not answered. Mm-hmm. And they're very media accessible. These guys will go on camera when you want them. They go to a lot of events. They're not hiding out like some candidates in other states. So they've really been thrown thousands of questions in the last 48 months. We might have even liked them to hide out like candidates in other states. Exactly. But they, they, re- they refused to. So that was my goal, to come up with questions that they had not been asked before or if we talked about an issue, to ask it in a different way. And, and you know, Jen, not to give away your hand or anything like that, but as you're thinking about uh, today's debate and, and the questions you'll ask, one of the things that I saw a lot of in, in Dennis's debate, and it's a struggle that uh, for, for all moderators, is what's called the pivot. In fact, Wolfie, do we have that piece of tape available here? This is actually, we've got a little clip from um, Game Change, which was the HBO uh, documentary, which Julia, not documentary, excuse me, docudrama, in which Julianne Moore played um, Sarah Palin. Palin. We have a little clip. Uh, in, let me just set the scene for you. It's, it's in fact, the, the debate uh, with Biden uh, and Palin. Uh, and Palin has been coached extensively on how to execute this particular maneuver. And so what you hear, uh, you hear a little bit of sort of the faux version of that debate, and then you hear Woody Harrelson as the campaign manager uh, who's been coaching her the whole time. You can hear him in the background. They're watching it on the video monitors and, and kind of encouraging, encouraging her to do this certain thing. Let's, let's hear that clip if we have it. Governor, please, if you want to respond to Senator McCain's comments about health care. Pivot. Pivot. I'd, I'd like to respond about the tax increases. And- yes. Oh, oh. Nice. Darn right. We need tax relief. So that's uh, that's the pivot, and it's becoming more and more uh, of a tool for people. Uh, Dennis uh, asked really great questions. Sometimes the candidate would uh, answer for about twenty seconds ago. But I'd really like to talk about <laughs> talk about something else. I don't know is that is that a concern to you? Do you want to get your specific question answered? Well, I think uh, with the Hartford Current and Fox Connecticut debate where we were able to watch them, they did answer the questions, but then they would turn to what topic they wanted to talk about. So you definitely saw that during that. And, and the way that that debate was set up was interesting because there were it was different from before. They had a lot more rebuttal time and rebuttal mm-hmm. chances to kind of talk about whatever they were trying to – or their message that they were trying to get across. But I wanted to – when I had formed questions for this debate, I agree with exactly what Dennis has said. We've heard them talk about transportation, economy, education, all of the main topics, and and they do differ on those a lot. But I wanted to ask questions that I hadn't heard that do affect people that I personally know in in my life. And, and, you know, obviously we had a few questions left over from – the other debate that we didn't end up using. But I, it's funny to listen to that parody because I watched some of the Sarah Palin-Biden uh, debate and I hadn't seen seen the parody. Yeah, and it's not even really a parody. It's really a, it is a, as close to a rep- representation. It's based on Mark Halpern's book, Game Change, where they, they found out as much as they can. And that that is their representation of what was going, be- behind the, going on behind the scenes, that whole idea of pivot, pivot. If you don't have a good answer to that question or the answer to that question isn't doesn't really favor you talk about something else uh, and you'll get away with it. So, Kevin McMahon, that brings up the question of what debates are for. Why are there political debates? Why do we need them? Why are they any better than a press conference or, or some other way of asking unscripted questions of candidates? 
Yeah, I mean, historically, they're really essential for democracy, right? This is a, a chance for um, either reporters or the man on the street when that when that type of question is asked to to force these candidates to to say what they stand for. Um, sometimes that's done by press conference, but increasingly candidates don't use press conferences very very often. So the debates are really a chance to to hear what they have to say about a particular issue. Although really, I mean, their history begins kind of in 1960. I mean, there was no ingrained tradition of at least presidential sure. debates prior to 1960. And, and some theorists, uh, including people like Daniel Borston in The Image uh, and uh, more recently Michael Schudson in The Good Citizen, uh, say, well, really, these are in some ways events that are as much about television as they are about anything else. They, they happened at the ascendancy of television. They actually... Uh, um, were an opportunity for television to represent itself as a force for public good and, and a force for the public interest in the wake of the quiz show, show scandals. Television stock had gone down ethically and, and suddenly they could say, no, no, this is something we do that nobody else can do. And, and so uh, in 1960, I believe there were more people watching the Nixon-Kennedy debates than voted in that election. Yeah, I mean, certainly the more recently the the importance of TV has, as you highlighted, is certainly the case. But you certainly have a, historic ex- examples as well, like Lincoln Douglas as a as a famous debate, and so you know it certainly has a, a longer history than just 1960. And and since 1960, that's become increasingly important, in in part because. 1960 was the first and then the last, as you recall, until 1976, because Nixon avoided doing them um, after 1960. And they've become really a centerpiece of the presidential campaign uh, in recent times. Yeah. And, and so – and by the way, in 1858, Nixon, uh, the uh, Douglas-Lincoln debates – was there was a little bit uh, d- was different in purpose too because mm-hmm. U.S. senators were elected by state legislatures at the time, so it wasn't necessarily even a showcase to win over a certain kind of voter. Those voters weren't even voting in, in that race. But you know, uh, after that, they became a relatively rare thing. I think Wilkie tried to get Roosevelt to to de- debate him on on radio, and uh, Roosevelt didn't want to do it. And that raises another question that comes up, and it's coming up right now. I mean, even in Connecticut, we have a situation, Dennis, which I'm sure you'll be covering uh, this week on your Sunday show, and, and may have covered already where Denise Napier, who's candidate for treasurer, not, you know, not the most high-profile race in the world, but uh, her opponent, Tim Herbst, he wants to debate her. He thought he was going to debate her. She pulled out of the debate on the day of the debate. And then that kind of raises a question. Do we as an electorate have – and do we as a press corps, for that matter, have some right to demand uh, that every four years – these candidates get up and subject themselves to this process. It's interesting. Someone in our newsroom suggested yesterday that it should be a state law that you must, in order to get public financing, you have to commit to a public debate. I think we're very fortunate in this state that Dan Malloy and Tom Foley have put themselves out there so frequently to debate. Look at California, the last Senate election. Dianne Feinstein, longtime senator there, in a state that was really a financial mess, was refusing to debate her opponent and got away with it and was reelected. So I think the voters are well served by debates, but a lot of candidates feel they don't have to do them because they can have all this advertising, which is probably the number one way they reach the voters. Absolutely. Well, prior to the 1960 debate, in fact, that's what candidates did. They bought bulk amounts of TV time. And and so it was kind of a wonderful thing to them in 1960 where suddenly they were sitting there in front of Howard K. Smith and not having to pay for any of the time. Um, Jen, I I don't do you agree with all that? I mean, now having been through a gubernatorial debate already, Mm -hmm. I mean, 
are they intrinsically valuable? Do they are they worth fighting for? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think they're incredibly important uh, for the public. I mean, the 1960 debate that you're talking about obviously shows that you can do really well as a candidate, or you can do really badly with it. Obviously, the the Nixon image hurt him. Although on the radio, when I was reading about it more, people thought that Nixon did better than JFK. Uh, here in the state, I think that Denise does have a responsibility to the voters and, and whatever is going on and what why she didn't come to that specifically or why she hasn't been responding to the press for the last couple of months, whatever reason it is, it comes off as cavalier and it comes off as um, as if, you know, you don't care and you have one of the most powerful positions in the state. I mean, you control tens of thousands of, uh, of people's pensions here in the state. So I think it is important for you to get up there and, and talk about it and talk about and defend your 16-year tenure. Um, you know, I mean, this doesn't apply to the treasurer's debate, Kevin McMahon, but one of the arguments that, that became, that raised itself about debates subsequent to 1960 is that really they were more about mastery of television. And as Jen was alluding to, people who had heard the debate on the radio thought Nixon was doing better. There's a certain amount of historical mythologizing about all this stuff about the 1960 debate. Some of it, you know, is sort of collective memory as opposed to perfect accuracy. But it, it started up a conversation, which is, and the conversation was, are these really debates about who can master? Master the medium as opposed to a window into the minds of these candidates. In so many ways, a political debate is not like any other debate. It's almost a misnomer to call them a debate. A debate otherwise always has a topic. Mm-hmm. You know, if you and I are going to have a debate, it's probably going to be about, you know, a specific topic. Uh, we're not going to debate about whether I'm a better person than you. They, that only happens in, in political debates. All other debates are about the merits of some question. But so the, the critique is, well, this isn't really a debate. It's really about who can get over on the other person in a particular medium, that medium being television. Yeah, I mean, I I think it really depends on the format. I mean, you can have what's called a group press conference. You see this often in the presidential primaries where there's seven or eight individuals standing up on the stage and it really becomes, you know, one person gets 90 seconds and and it becomes really not much more than just their talking points, right? But I I and then you also have town hall style debates where you know, the individuals who are asking the question probably don't know as much about the issue as a reporter who's asking a question uh, from a panel and can have follow-up questions. If you allow for more extended time, if you allow for uh, reporters to ask the question, I think you, you, you can get a better sense of what these candidates are, are like. I'm wondering, Jen, as the uh, undoubtedly youngest person in the room, <laughs> and probably by at least a decade, um, <laughs> really, <laughs> <laughs> um, whether or not this any of this strikes you, obviously your career's in television, you therefore love and believe in television, there will always be television. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, we're in a radically altered media landscape today, uh, and the primacy of television isn't really what it was in 1960. Uh, people get their information in much more complicated mosaics. Um, and, and I'm wondering whether that whole idea of some cameras trained on two or more candidates with, uh, with people often or almost always from the television profession asking a lot of questions. Does that seem 
to you like it's sort of written into the DNA code of the future? Or can you imagine, uh, you know, 10 years from now, some very different way that reflects the more scattered digital reality? I think that will still exist. I think that the medium that you watch it from is what is changing. So you have us streaming it live on the web. You have uh, people tweeting about it. You have the candidates all on Twitter because that's how people, you know, younger people communicate a lot of times. And then you have all of the social media aspects of that. So I do think that you'll still have cameras and people talking. And, you know, in 10 years, I would say yes. I just think that people are going to be watching them from different devices and at different times and on their own time and not necessarily if the debate's at 7 o'clock. I don't – maybe they're not sitting in front of the television and watching it right then. But I do still think people will be viewing it. Then is that – there's there's an odd – um, paradox in, in all that too because I mean even sometimes when you've got an especially compelling thing going on on your Sunday morning show, you know, it becomes um, an online event and some of us are sitting there live tweeting it and making fun of whoever you're talking to. <laughs> and or me. Or you are having a really good – we never make fun of you, Dennis. You are flawless. You, there's nothing oh, – you, you give us nothing to work with. See, I love uh, Colin. We go back so long. You know, I was a guest on his show back 22 years yes. ago. It used to be a lot of fun. But anyway, um, go ahead. So yeah, you give us nothing to work with. But I mean so on the one hand, Jen's absolutely right. There's time switching. So these aren't necessarily real-time events. On the other hand, there's another thing that's going on, which was when you were moderating the other night, people – we're watching in real time and spinning already, spinning it. I mean, either spinning it because they had agendas or spinning it because that's what they like to do with their Twitter accounts or, or to amuse mm-hmm. themselves. I mean, events exist very differently now. They certainly do. People can respond instantly and they have their own viewpoints and they want to get them out there. If I could pivot for one quick well, moment pivot. <laughs> just pivot. to talk about the you, Napier debate, yeah. it's interesting how there's so much focus on a debate for the state treasurer's office, but there's no outcry or no demand for one for the attorney general's office or for Larson Corey debate in CT1 or an SD Greenberg debate to be televised. And that opens up another question. Why is her race such a focus this particular year? Because her opponent has made it mm-hmm. such, I would say, right? Yeah, I, I think there's some truth to that. I think this is a point that Jim, one of our callers, by the way, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Uh, this is Jim, one of our callers. Uh, he's from Woodbridge. What's on your mind, Jim? Uh, it's Tim, and oh. I oh, was just going to piggyback on what uh, – <clears throat> um, Dennis was talking about why, you know, where we're focused mostly, uh, you know, on television. It's bizarre. There's lots of radio stations. A couple of years ago, I heard more debates on the gubernatorial from a rock station out of the New Haven area than I did from other places. So, you know, radio has a tremendous uh, possibility of having debates. But, you know, Secretary of State, these these offices oftentimes have no debates or there might be at the Hartford Library where no one sees them. So a little bit of of it is, you know, why aren't there congressional debates? Part of the reason I hear, like, uh, maybe you, Colin, and a few dozen people who actually kind of control the political discussion is, well, no one's going to win that. (laughs) No one's going to win, you know, upset Courtney, so why is anybody going to televise this debate? We, We People put their stamp of approval on what's a hot race and what's a cold race, and if we could have more competitive races with almost guaranteeing that somebody out of New Haven will get to debate Rosa DeLora, maybe more people would turn out for other for those races. And Courtney's opponent in the second, Tim? 
I have no idea. I don't live in the second. <laughs> there Lori you go. Kavanaugh. Yeah, yes. Very good. That is very good. But I mean, yeah, look, first of all, I just um, I, I don't disagree with Tim as much as he thinks. I, I, I do think all these all races should be treated as competitive. We talked about this on the wheelhouse. Uh, I brought it up on the wheelhouse a few weeks ago that I do feel as though not just as a matter of debates, but all of these races should not be regarded as runaways and, and that, you know, in, in the media, we're all a little bit culpable to the degree to which we fetishize and focus on, you know, this kind of close looking anyway, gubernatorial race, kind of to the exclusion of a lot of other stuff. Although, I mean, I think Greenberg Esty is the other one. I mean, there, there's it's weird, too, because because because, Jen, you know, I mean, news is news. And so it, it's. He's right. As a matter of democracy, all of these races should be treated pretty even-handedly. But news is news. And so the close race, the potentially closer race, is the most interesting one to us, although that also can become kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy too. I don't know how we sort that out. I'm, I'm expecting you and your generation to do that. <laughs> That's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> no, uh, I know I agree with you. I mean uh- – Obviously, I'm not the one who's sitting in the decision room when we say we're going to take this debate or we're going to um, carry this one. I mean, we've been reading, obviously, for months about what are perceived to, to be the close races, which is our, which are the governor's race and the 5th Congressional District. Um, but I, I agree. I mean, I think every race should be taken seriously. I don't think anyone should take their spot for granted. It's a, it's a public spot that people have put you in, have put your trust in, and, and you shouldn't just – you know, you should be campaigning. You should be talking to people. But yes, at, at some point, it's like if you don't have that forum on, on TV or a chance to talk to your opponent and have the public view it, then where do you go? Uh, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, I want to start Kevin McMahon off on the whole question of, of who gets to go to debates. Uh, it's been a pretty hotly debated question uh, in here in the Connecticut debate. Meanwhile, we got a tweet from DFA New Haven. He tweets, in order to receive public financing, or perhaps she tweets, uh, in order to receive public financing in New Haven mayoral races, candidates must participate in at least one debate. And they also have to wait in the Sally's Pizza line at least once if they want to run for mayor. All right, we'll be back. All right, we're talking about debates today as we get ready for a 4 p.m. debate over at the Hartford Hilton. Uh, Dennis House and Jen Bernstein are here in studio with me from WFSB and Fox, Connecticut, respectively. They will be panelists in this debate, which by some uh, accident of filing, uh, I have been asked to moderate. Uh, I just keep I keep expecting somebody to say, well, no, that was a mistake. You're not really the moderator. But uh, but I, Dennis is going to co- keep me calm about this. He's already signed off on my wardrobe. Uh, you look I'm, good, Colin. I'm you feeling better. I'm, it's not my, I'm not not comfortable. Uh, Kevin McMahon is with us. He's the John R. Reitmeyer Professor of Political Science at Trinity. Um, by the way, we're getting phone calls. Diana and Bill, I will get to you. Uh, we're getting tweets at, um, at WNPR. Colin, Neil Connors tweets apropos of where we're headed right now. Uh, Governor Cuomo wouldn't debate Zephyr Teachout. Uh, Tom Foley won't debate Joe Visconti. Um, is that an attempt to avoid an emperor slash no clothes moment? Um, I think it's a lot of different things, and I'm sure Dennis and Jen have some some thoughts about this. But, you know, I don't know. As There's no engraved principle, I would assume, Kevin, about who gets to be on the stage, how that gets decided. We've seen the impact that a Ross Perot made in 1992, maybe even a John Anderson in 80? 80, yes. I think. You know, I mean, 
sometimes third-party candidates, even in presidential debates, get onto the stage. Um, I, I don't know. Is there is there any sort of way of thinking about this, either abstractly or concretely? Yeah, I mean, you know, part of, and as um, this connects to earlier questions, but part of why we have debates and who gets invited is is pure strategy, right? So if you think a third-party candidate is somehow going to um, attract votes away from you, you don't want that person to be there or you don't want to attend that debate if he or she shows up. And and there, I think there could be some type of formula if if it's done before the campaign begins, right? So if you have a public opinion poll and the person has to be in double digits or, you know, five points, if, if you had that sort of set up uh, before the, the actual campaign begins, that might be the best way. The problem is, as particularly with presidential debates, is that oftentimes the people who are writing the rules are the candidates themselves or the campaign. So they get structured in such a way that it, it makes it difficult for you, you to get beyond that and deal with these other issues. Yeah, the, the League of Women Voters used to run presidential de- uh, debates and then they withdrew. And then that uh, Commission on Presidential Debates was formed, which really is – that's the candidates themselves. Here in Connecticut, a more free-flowing thing. We have a lot of opportunities, uh, debate to, after debate after debate, to figure out what the rules are. So, so Dennis, how does this look to you? I mean uh, different people are doing different things. The latest news, it's alluded to in the tweet from Neil Connors, is that at least in one instance, uh, the third-party candidate, Joe Visconti, is going to be allowed into the NBC Connecticut debate. And that means that Tom Foley doesn't want to be in it. I mean, how does that landscape look to you, and particularly vis-a-vis how these decisions get made? Well, at WFSB, our policy is you must score 10 percent in a poll. And Joe Visconti did not at the time of our planning of the debate. I believe he was at 6 or 7 percent in the Quinnipiac poll. So we did not include him in that debate. If you look at the national presidential debates, Ralph Nader, a nationally recognized figure with millions of followers, was not allowed to debate. And I don't know how he scored in the polls. I don't recall right now, but he was not allowed to be there. We've had Joseph Visconti on many times on Face the State. We'll probably have him on again before the election. But that was the policy and we had to stick with it. Uh, Jen, how, how do you parse all that? Uh, I mean, we have the same policy over with the Harvard Current in Fox, Connecticut, uh, with the 10 percent. You know, it's it's tough because Visconti has been kind of on the, on the cusp of that. Um, so it feels like at some point he should have that forum. Now, we've done the same thing that Dennis was just talking about. We've had Visconti on a lot. You know, we've. I put him on our show also with Al Terzi uh, and given him the forum. If he's reached out to me and he wanted to talk about something, we've been able to give him uh, that forum. But, uh, yeah, I don't have a, a clear answer with that either because there's no, you know, rule in general, nationally or really locally. It's an organization that generally picks what the rules are. May I add just one quick thing? And that is that state lawmakers and the governor who signed off on this in terms of our governorial campaign financing excludes third-party candidates and independent candidates as well. So they have set up that structure. Yeah, well, it's just incredibly hard for yeah. a third-party candidate to qualify for public financing. It's not impossible, but it's really, really hard for a third-party candidate to qualify. And, and similarly, I mean, it's a little bit easier to get that line and, and maybe hold that ballot line. But, you know, I'm just wondering whether there's a contrasting good here. In other words, you know, ideally, we want a system that doesn't – I mean, we want a system that maybe privileges the two major parties, although I'm not exactly sure what the rationale for that is. But we also – there's something to me anyway – 
endemic to the to the American myth that, you know, if you're Mr. Smith, if you're some guy who thinks he could do a pretty good job, maybe do a better job than these other two guys, why shouldn't you have a voice? You know, why, why shouldn't you have a voice? And since you probably can't afford the advertising, since you can't afford all these other things, since, as Dennis is suggesting, public financing is really going to be a reach, even in a state like ours that has a remarkable citizens' elections program, debates might be one of the few chances you could get to place yourself up against. And, you know, think about the debate that, that Jerry hosted a few years ago, Jerry Brooks at, at 30, where uh, he had Chris Murphy uh, and he had uh, uh, Lee Whitnam and Matthew Oakes uh, and Susan Beisowitz. And it was a pretty rowdy debate. I mean, these were two of these candidates were absolutely marginal candidates. Right. But it was a different kind of debate, too. And I, I, I don't know how to say, well, those two people really don't deserve to be part of that. Right. Yeah, I think. I mean, I I think you're making the argument that third party candidates often say the reason why they're at only six or seven percent is because they don't have the exposure, either because of funds or because they're not they're not invited to these debates. So it just it's a system that continues because of the way it's set up, and and that ultimately isn't fair. But you you know certainly not only in the U.S. but across the world, you have systems that exclude certain parties sometimes if they get a certain percentage and. Mm-hmm in proportional representation systems, if they don't get a certain percentage, then they're even excluded from you know, serving in office. So there, it's not an uncommon thing to say that fringe candidates or fringe parties uh, don't get to, to participate in the same way. Um, let me grab a call or two here, 860-275-7266. Here's Craig in Wallingford. Hi, Craig. Hello. You're on the air. Okay, Colin, uh, you said before that the uh, debates usually wind up being a tie or something of that nature. Um, All of the debates I've seen so far, uh, I pretty much know the answers that you're going to hear to the questions that are posed by the questioners. What I would love to see is a half of the debate uh, devoted to allowing the candidates to question themselves and allow the moderator to step in uh, at a certain uh, time during the answering and shift the uh, questioning to the other fella. Uh, I think that we'd learn a lot more about the candidates that way. So in other words, you'd like to see the candidates question each other, not question themselves. The candidates never question themselves. That's how they become <laughs> candidates. Uh, but um, well, let me just uh, – let me put a little bit of perspective into that and I do want to hear what, uh, what the others have to say. Um, first of all, let me say that um, the way that debates were structured initially or particularly around that 1960 debate, uh, the, the negotiations were that the candidates didn't want to talk back and forth. Uh, they were glad to have a, a moderator interposed between them because to do otherwise puts them in in the position of kind of the prosecuting attorney, uh, you know, drilling the other candidate. And that never looks good. You know, you don't want to seem aggressive if you're a candidate. Think about Rick Lazio and, and, and Hillary Clinton in that famous debate. So, um, so the candidates, for the most part, like having a moderator, don't want to have, you know, their own attack dog uh, dragged out here. I do think, I don't know all the details of this and I shouldn't be talking, but the New London Day debate, which my colleague, uh, Mr. John Dankosky, is hosting in a little while. I've got the, the, the date here. I'll, I'll give it to you in a second. I think that's a little lo- longer form anyway, and I don't know how much back and forth there are, but I think one of the things they're going for with that anyway is to deformalize the kind of 2 two, one thing. But, but Dennis, once again, just having moderated a debate between these two guys, uh, and these are two guys who don't like each other that much anyway, they're probably happy to have you. <laughs> <laughs> there. I mean, do you think anything would be accomplished by Craig's idea of letting them just go right back and forth with each other? I think it would be really interesting to just let them go at it, but I don't know that either 
side would agree with that. They all have campaign handlers, and it's not good for anybody. The advisor is going to say, listen, he's going to ask you this. He's going to put you in a difficult position. You're going to look like a fool. And so I can't imagine whoever puts together these debate rules and both campaigns get together, usually with the television station or the organizers, and hash out how it should be done. I don't think that they would ever go for that. But yeah, it would be interesting like a, to watch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's like contracts about rules and everything like that in yeah. these things. So, you know, we had a uh, Lee Whitman in our debate too. And mm-hmm. she went after Chris Murphy and she took a swipe at uh, Susan Beiswitz, I believe, as well. It was, it was fascinating to watch. Do you call anybody a horror, though, right? She, I forget that, exactly. That was, what that she was did. the moment in the, that we all remember in the, the 30 debate where she turned to Chris Murphy and said, We have horror. That's why I want these third-party candidates. She called them a liar in ours, and a few weeks later, she decided to up it to that word. Well, you know, you know, I mean, back to the point. Actually, let me take Bill from uh, Cheshire because he may actually make that point. I'm not 100 percent sure. Here's uh, Bill in Cheshire. Hi. Oh, hi. It's Bill, actually, but Bill is fine for today. We're great with the names today. It seems to be a theme. You've mentioned uh, the Lincoln-Douglas debates quite a few times, and being from Illinois and also being a student of uh, uh, Harold Harold Heiser, um, the Lincoln historian, um, the the debate format was uh, there was no moderator. Um, They flipped a coin. Whoever won the coin toss uh, could go first or second. Whoever went first had um, a solid, uh, I believe it was 30 minutes to talk. The second one had a full hour to talk. And then the first one uh, had the last half hour. It was kind of like a summation at a trial. Um, There was no, the back and forth was in half hour to an hour chunks. And it was all about presenting positions maybe contrasting their positions to the other candidate, but it was not personal attacks. It was about educating the audience, and it was about getting their ideas out there. What we have now with these moderators and all these questions is candidates who are basically trying to hide their positions and not present them and hope that they get in some good sound bites along the way. I, Bill, I, I, th- just, yeah, I think I you're absolutely just, right. Uh, I would just uh, not have moderators. Um, and and just have the the candidates up there, but not back and forth like a tennis match. All right, good point. Eight six zero two seven five seven two six six is uh, your number, uh, Bill. I missed some of what you said because I was getting a text and I was sending an email and I also looked at something on YouTube. Because really, like half an hour to concentrate on an answer, I don't think in twenty fourteen we have that capacity. There's just like too much going on. But you you were nodding, uh, Kevin, during that. What was your reaction to what he was saying? Well, you know. I guess I I don't really agree if you have the right format that you can't get something out of the candidates. If you have a, you know, if you have a reporter who can do a follow up, um you can and you can avoid the pivot, I think. You can have come back to the question and and really put the person in in a um a position where he or she has to answer the question. I, I think if Done, done properly, um, and I know it's difficult for a, a reporter who is supposed to be objective to sometimes appear a little hostile. Um, but I do think you can you can learn a lot from debates, uh, even when the candidates are trying to avoid uh, giving an honest answer. You know, one of the things I think that concerned me about this last debate was if they did not answer the question, I 
had the discretion to do a follow-up and say, well, you haven't answered this question. But if the same candidate didn't answer three questions in a row and the other one did, then I look like I'm picking on someone and someone's going to say that I'm biased. Yeah. So those are, it's a dicey situation. A lot of debates, you ask the question, they get the rebuttal and the moderator stays out of it. I, I, for that reason, one of the formats that I do like is the town hall format. Um, I mean, it's imperfect, and, and but you know these 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 formats where even in the presidential debates, where you have you know a group of people who come in and they get to ask questions, because I think people are candidates, politicians are used to blowing us off, right? You know, I mean, they're they're. <laughs> <laughs> we have a long-standing transactional relationship with candidates, and nobody's going to say that was so heartless the way he didn't answer Jen Bernstein's question. How could he possibly ignore her? Well, I mean, someone basically, did write that on my Facebook. Oh, really? Okay. Well, there's one <laughs> yeah, like, one person who believes in your humanity. That's good. Ex candidate yeah. did not answer your question, Jen. Right. I was like, but I mean, yeah. <laughs> but that's that's perceived as a tactical decision by the candidate. Whereas if the you know single mother of three stands up and asks some kind of question about the safety net, you know, and you blow it off, you, the candidate, blow it off, there, there's a price you pay for that. I mean, George H.W. Bush did pay that price in his town hall debate where Clinton was seemed to be able to interact a whole lot more effectively and naturally with human beings. It's, you know, I don't know, Dennis. I mean, I feel like they're, they're used to us, these candidates, but real people you know, might stand a chance of getting real answers out of them. Yeah, I agree. And real people also want to see some new things out of the candidate. Look at there were so many people who believed that Al Gore was more qualified than George Bush and John Kerry than George Bush. But look, he came across more likable in both those debates, mm-hmm. both those years, and that may have tilted the balance in his favor. The sigh, right? The sigh. The yeah. sigh. Things like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is mastery of a medium, understanding where you are. George H.W. Bush looking at his watch. Yeah, uh, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. These yeah. little things <clears throat> like that, which are not entirely significant. Rick Perry unable to come up with the third thing of three. Although, I mean, I have seen your moments like that all the time. But, you know, those mo- they become kind of defining moments in a way that I think is more reflective of the medium you're in as opposed to a real evaluation of the qualities of a person's mind. No, I certainly agree that, you know, those town hall debates do force the candidates to ask a uh, sorry, answer a you know a person on the street type of question. My my concern about with that that format is it's more difficult to do a follow up. The questions tend to be a little more vague. They tend to be easier to answer, I think, than when you have sort of a sharper question from a reporter. All right, let's grab a little uh, break here. We we're happy to take your phone calls as we come back. Uh, we'll start with John in Milford and your tweets at WNPR Colin. But our phone number is eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. As far as I'm concerned, you can even suggest questions that you would like to hear asked today or at one of the future debates in the Malloy Foley race, or if you've got issues about some of these other races and whether you'd like to see a debate featuring some of the other candidates. Uh, give us a call eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. We'll be nice. We are going to insist that China plays by the same rules. They're hacking into our computers, counterfeiting our goods, stealing our intellectual property, our patents, our designs. Okay. China's a potential partner if it's following the rules. We want to trade with them, but you got to play by the rules. Now that we're finally bringing troops home, won't the Afghans be lonely when they're all alone? When Afghans are perfectly capable of defending their own country, yeah. there's no reason why Americans should die. The Taliban, they're going to come rushing back in when we go. Ladies and gentlemen, my opponent is a complex man whose mastery of information technology conceals the soul of a poet and dramatist. You have 20 seconds to run to the other podium and respond. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I would object to my opponent's words if he were not such a caring husband and wonderful father. Nice use of the subjunctive, other me. Ugh, this is boring. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. The two Greg Hills appeared in our intro and tweet for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Colleen Mason and Nia Tyler. The part of Bill Curry was played by John Lovitz. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff debating Dan Quayle, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, the nose continues its war against pumpkin spice. And now... Back to Colin. That may not be what we talk about on the nose tomorrow, but I had to think of something on short notice. Um, we have some other ideas about the nose, including actually, I'll just quickly mention one thing, which is that um, uh, in New York State, uh, no, in New York City, excuse me, right now, they are contemplating a change in public documents that would allow you to self-identify your gender on your birth certificate, on your driver's license, and then all the other public documents that flow from there, so that uh, e- even in the in the teeth, if as it were, of what your anatomy is or your hormones or whatever, you can just sort of say, no, this is who I am, this is what I am. Um, that would be a, a pretty revolutionary thing. Meanwhile, of course, in the world of sports, there are other very biologically denotative debates going on about who's a woman who can compete, and, and those have been going on too. So we're talking, we're, we're negotiating right now about what we're going to talk about on the notes. We don't exactly know. In studio with me right now, Jen Bernstein, uh, she's a journalist and anchor at Fox Connecticut, Dennis House, uh, journalist and anchor at WFSB Channel 3, Kevin McMahon, John R. Reitmeyer, professor of political science at Trinity. Three of the four of us are going over to the Hartford Hilton right after this to get ready for today's debate, uh, which will take place at 4 p.m. and be broadcast God knows when on God knows. Are you, is anybody carrying it live? 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock? You all, got, you all the stations. All the stations are, are carrying it live? Okay. We, we, I, don't, I don't think we are, but we're re-airing it on Sunday or airing it on Sunday. Okay. All right. All right. Just yeah. dial around frantically or check your Comcast mm-hmm. guide or something and uh, you'll figure out. Uh, and then Mr. Danco- Mr. Dankoski will be hosting a debate. Uh, it's a WNPR CPTV and the day of New London debate. That's October 16th, 8 p.m., Guard Arts Theater. As I say, that will be moderated by our own John Dankoski. So that's all of our debate information for now. Um, let me uh, go to the phones here and then I, I have a specific thing that I want to – Start Kevin off on. I maybe get the whole panel to talk about it as we head down the home stretch here. Here's uh, Alex in New Haven. It says you have a cool idea, Alex. You better have a cool idea now. <laughs> Colin, thanks for taking my phone call. Um, yeah, I was thinking that there's such, so much dispute about facts that it would be great if the moderator could focus on what they do, but at the same time have a little panel off to the side that immediately, when they bring up facts and figures, can actually maybe come in afterwards and say, okay, well, uh, you know, so-and-so said this, but these are actually the facts. And let me give you an example. Uh, Tom Foley likes to talk about how uh, Malloy, uh, State of Connecticut is 48th or 49th in job creation, which is true, but that's been true for a long time. And that kind of thing might, you know, educate the public. So that was my comment. First of all, Alex, I think you're bringing up a really, really important point. This is a cool idea. Uh, so uh, but the other part of this, I'll, I'll give you my suggestion, which is mm, 86% facetious, but uh, kind of based on what you're saying. I think by common agreement, I'm not sure whether Jen and Dennis would uh, go in with me 100% on this, but by most agreement, those of us who cover politics, we all 
most of us believe that the person who really understands the numbers is Keith Fanna from, from the Connecticut Mirror. That like nobody else really is quite on the same par with Keith because he basically has decided to have no life. And so I mean he just geeks out on all this stuff. So my plan was that next election cycle we should run Keith as a third party candidate, get him up over ten percent in the polls, no matter what we have to do, and then he'd be on stage for the debates. And so then somebody would say something about jobs or numbers or something like that, and Keith would go, well, "That's not true." <laughs> Like ESPN, they have those statisticians. Right. This is the 14th uh, game in a row that Tom Brady has started with a whatever, and they come up with these random statistics that really impress you. Well, you I, that. but the, it kind of does lead to what I wanted to ask all of you. But I, in Kevin, I'm going to start with you. You know, I mean, because actually during the break, you use the phrase or a phrase like "so and so had a better night than so some somebody else," or you know, I think somebody quote unquote won that debate or prevailed or whatever. So. What does that mean now? I mean, in this day and age, I mean, first of all, I think we have to acknowledge it means something pretty subjective. I mean, you may be looking for more meat as a political scientist than somebody who's got, you know, a bag of Doritos and a couple of beers and is watching this. Yeah, it, that's a not hard... that you're not watching it. <laughs> it's a hard question to answer. I mean, I, I think you you can gain information, you know, gain. I think, you know, if somebody says, for example, we need leadership, right? I think you have to represent that as a candidate, right? If if you say that you you know you're uh, you're smart, you have to come off a, or you have to come across in, in that way, right? So I think some of it is just to the extent to which a candidate represents what he or she is saying. Yeah, am I plausibly the thing that I say that I am, and I pl- am I plausibly the thing that I'm running for? Although that's pretty ineffable too. I mean, that's you know that's a difficult thing to pin down. I don't know, Jen. Do you have another way of thinking about this, or thinking about the way people think about it? I mean, are you referring to the fact? Well, I mean, if you look at some of the messages that were seen in some of these debates, you have them both throwing out the, what they want your perception of the other candidate to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so that may be a way of winning. If, if you can drive home your negative message about the other candidate, that may be a strange Pyrrhic kind of victory. Yeah, I think Governor Moy wants uh, Tom Foley to look like a billionaire who can't relate to the everyday person. And Tom Foley wants Governor Malloy to look like a career politician who's out, out of touch or doesn't isn't equipped to handle what the state has gone through economically. How about you, Kevin? How about you, Dennis, as you evaluate how – how I mean, well, or as you watch evaluations? I mean, you have to be sort of careful. It's not really for the most part usually your job to say, well, so-and-so had a better night than so-and-so. Um, but as you tacitly evaluate that, how does it look to you? Well, it's interesting. I had my back to the audience, as you know, so I couldn't re- watch how the audience reacted to this particular debate. I got comments in Facebook and Twitter and things like that later. But on Sunday, I hosted a forum – moderated a forum between Joe Visconti, Dan Malloy, and Tom Foley. They did not appear together. They each had a half hour and they were asked the same questions. But I got to wander around the audience and pick people to ask questions. So I got to actually hear their reactions. It's interesting. A lot of people are kind of sick of the gun question. Mm-hmm. They're sick of it being asked because they know what the answer is going to be. And it's never going to change among any th- three of them. And it, Governor Malloy brings it up because he knows it's, it's a negative for – Tom Foley and Joe Visconti, it's a positive for him. So they like to bring it up. But I think the viewers and the voters might be tired of hearing it. 
Um, we've got an email here from James saying maybe no one would have the attention span, maybe, quote, no one would have the attention span to listen to long debates. But TV networks and cable channels can barely be convinced to carry these things in any kind of substantial format in the first place. Why not have real academic debates that are not carried on the air but recorded for anyone who wants to watch them on YouTube or something? And then reporters and political wonks who care about this stuff can pay attention live and disseminate the positions that were laid out by the candidates to the larger public. Boy, this email itself was almost... Uh, uh, TLDR. Uh, it seems like the crux. I'm kidding. Uh, it seems like the crux of this issue is whether debates are just supposed to be a source of information straight from the horse's mouth, or if they're also supposed to be a form of live entertainment. I vote for the former. Kevin, he raises an interesting point, but I, I think. And by the way, if anybody wants to read something really interesting about this, um, uh, Michael Shudson's book, The Good Citizen, which I'm sitting right here, uh, and this, uh, just the, there's a little segment about political debates. And if you read it, you will realize how unoriginal all my ideas today have been. But, um, you know, he basically says, well, this is – it's ritual too, right? There, we now have – after 1960 anyway, this notion of ritual uh, and and that uh, whether or not it serves as an admirable way of extracting information about a, the, the qualities of a candidate's mind or not, it it's a, kind of is what it is. It's a ritual and people expect it to be a certain way. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Um, but it still – it doesn't mean that we can't gather information from that. You know, a similar – Conversations occur when um, candidates are invited to editorial boards, right? They're asked questions. There's a response. The, ed- the members of the board will um, gather information, make a decision on whether or not they're going to endorse a candidate and then do so and write, write something up. I think in the same way that that's a more complete process, I think voters are, are doing that when, when, they're, when they're watching these debates. I mean, Jen, you said earlier, you, know, you, you and Dennis both said, well, you know, we've had Visconti in and just fired questions at him. Is that a better way anyway of finding out well, I or think just a different way? It's a different way. I think that you, you gather different kinds of information from the different forums. Uh, me, as a journalist, asking uh, Joe Visconti questions and his reactions is going to be very different than him up against Tom Foley and how they interact with each other. I think it's a responsible, you know, or a responsibility of the public that when they're watching this, that they go and they get their other information. They watch multiple debates. They go online. They research what they heard. I think that's the best way you're going to be able to form an opinion. Is everything going to be solved from that one debate? Are you going to watch it and have all of the information you need for, to make your decision voting? I don't think so. Dennis, that's kind of the paradox. You know, you watch an interview and think, well, that's no good. You've got to see them debate to really find out who they really are. You watch a debate and you think, well, that's no good. You've got to watch an interview to find out who they really are. Well, you know, all the voters are different. They have different things that concern them. Some folks are concerned about gun rights. Some are concerned about lower taxes. And if those questions aren't discussed in a debate, then they might feel that they got nothing out of it. Others... School teachers, they want to hear a lot of questions about education. And if they only get one, then they might feel let down by that particular debate. So I think you have to serve all the voters out there. And there are some who might just vote Democratic. They're going to vote anyway and they just want to watch. There are some who are going to vote Republican anyway. There are some who are on the fence, but they want to know about X, Y, and Z. All right. That's going to have to be the last word. In two hours, I have to try to step into Dennis House's big and very expensive shoes uh, and try to moderate a debate. Oh, I'm so scared. Uh, that's right. OK. I don't believe that. All right. So uh, we'll be uh, we'll tune in for that if you can find it somewhere. And we're going to carry it, I think, tonight at eight. I think that's correct. I think we're going to carry it uh, at eight tonight. Thanks to uh, Kevin, to Dennis uh, uh, and to Jen for coming in here today. And we'll be back tomorrow with the nose.
Candidate Hill, your thoughts on funding for public radio? Yes, I believe it was Terry Gross who said, ask not what public radio can do for you, ask what you can do for public radio. That was Jack Kennedy. Well, sort of. You're no Jack Kennedy. I'm Kyone Wolf. Ugh.